0: hi and welcome to the wonderful world of disney villains podcast i'm your host katie ohashi ready to talk about everything disney so today i thought i would read to you my master's thesis which does combine a lot of the things from episode one but it also kind of um i would say delves into or goes more in depth to certain identities and certain examples Uh, Also gives more examples, I would say. So I thought I would read it um, just to kind of give you a perspective. Obviously, this is what I started with even before episode one. This is kind of, even though I said the professional development workshop was what really got me started, at least with the blog and the podcast, this thesis is literally what started me on the journey of disney to begin with so i guess in a way this is kind of like the prequel in um, my journey with disney research and i just wanted to say i did tweak this paper a bit so that it would make more sense for me to read it and for you to understand it Um, like I didn't include any of the, I plan to talk about this in my paper or, and I didn't include any of the, um, end quotes. I just flat out explained like this is coming from this source. That way, if you wanted to look into it, you totally can. Um, and I do recommend there, there are so many books out there about these topics that I was not exposed to until I did this paper. And so if you are interested in any of the things that I, talked about in episode one or even in this episode, I highly recommend looking at it. I'll try to include as many of the resources that I mentioned as I possibly can, Um, but please be gentle and please know that I may miss a couple on accident. Okay, so analyzing the representation of Disney villains in predominantly minoritized identities. So for as long as I can remember, the Walt Disney Company, and particularly Disney animated films, have been a big part of my childhood and are a big part of who I am today, as you've kind of gathered from episode one and, and other, uh, the blog and et cetera. As a child, I would re-watch and watch and watch and watch the 1980s and 1990s Disney films. So, Aladdin, Beauty and the Beast, Mulan, The Little Mermaid, Hercules, and so on, um, The Lion King, etc. And every morning before school, I would watch The Little Mermaid and The Aladdin TV show spinoffs. Um, the Little Mermaid one is actually on Disney+. Plus. The Aladdin one, I'm still waiting to see if they can get copyright laws. But anyway, that's separate. Um, so, growing up, Aladdin was my all-time favorite movie. And, and still actually pretty much is um aladdin was technically the first disney animated movie with a disney princess of color and as a young person of color who loved disney movies i identified with this movie this was the movie that i latched on to i saw a powerful female princess of color who embraced her identity and um, embraced independence self-advocacy and female empowerment way early in the 90s and I saw her as a strong woman of color who spoke out about forced marriage, being treated like an object of some man's affection, and who had the courage to speak out in a world where women were seen and not heard. So she essentially was my role model growing up. And I can't tell you how many times I've seen that movie. Uh, must be at least a million. So thank, thank you, Disney <laughs> and um, Linda Larkin. So uh, as I grew older uh like I would say college and beyond I came back to Disney and started rewatching the animated films again and I just was reminded of my childhood really but also as an adult going through graduate school and a growing participant in more and more topics and discussions around identity and equity and um oppression and and barriers and so on, I've realized that Disney is not this gold star mentor society believes it to be that I initially had believed it to be. Oftentimes as a society, we may not think about how big of an icon and how big of a pop, pop culture icon that Disney is and how it can influence society through its media to perpetuate certain ideals and values not that they're trying to do that but um, I would say unconsciously they probably are doing it because they're so popular and so big and so why and so I started to question why do we trust Disney and the films Disney produces to educate our children on how to be good people in society where's their list of credentials to raise children so we don't have to and what struck me the most as an adult was this generational pattern of disney villains being modeled to children in the same way uh hence this podcast which was having a skin color other than white um aside from Gaston and hans but they kind of purposely did that so that you would be off your game and then uh identifying as an adult or an older adult you never see kids as villains because the target audience is kids and having a non-standard United States accent or dialect when speaking, and there's a lot more which I'll talk about. Um, even with society's slow move toward equality of all races, sexualities, genders, and more, and it's very slow. Like we could be a bit a bit more progressive about it, but um, a bit, and we can speed things up. But you know, uh, it's not my decision to make anyway. Um, So even with all these things and our our slow move back and forth towards equality, Disney is still producing villains with the same physical makeup and identity since the 1930s. And those are identities that are marginalized. And I personally believe that villains are the true heroes and the ones we as human beings relate to the most. So while Disney heroes follow a generational pattern of often being young, heterosexual, white, having a United States dialect... Um, and individuals in general who hold so much privilege in their physical identities alone. and Disney villains on the other, on the other hand, excuse me, represent the parts of humanity we wish to ignore, in my opinion, uh, which are you know, ha- being angry, being jealous, being envious, um, being lustful, being selfish, um, as well as being vulnerable and desperate, and just looking at those aspects of ourselves we try to hide from society. For these reasons, um, I decided to write this paper and look at and examine what makes or creates a Disney villain. And um, as previously mentioned, I do believe that even though you see vulnerability in heroes and princesses, I think Disney villains represent a very real vulnerability and very real characteristics that anybody in today's society and anybody in you know in the past as well as the future will experience or can relate to, which is making mistakes, trying and failing, and trying again, fighting for what you believe in, advocating for yourself, or advocating for others and, and things that you believe in, whereas Disney heroes in most cases represent the privileged population um, of individuals. Who have everything handed to them and are successful without trying. So, what makes a Disney villain? According to Amy Davis's Handsome Heroes and Vile Villains, Masculinity in Disney's Feature Films, when many people think of the Disney Studios animated feature films, they think of princesses. And I would say Disney, Disney, oh, Disney animated films. Are more known for their heroes, which are generally the princes and princesses, who go on a journey and defeat the villain in order to live happily ever after, right? And villains who are, quote, evil to the point of monstrous, quote, and whose, quote, determination, jealousy, and dynamism really nearly steal the show from the heroines who are the targets of their animosity, which is also a quote by um, the Handsome Heroes and Vile Villains book. But what makes a character a villain? Or better yet, what makes a villain a Disney villain? And this is something that I talked about in episode one a little bit. So in the Disney Villain Deathmatch podcast available, I believe, anywhere you would get podcasts. um, The Disney Villain Deathmatch podcast is a podcast that pits Disney villains against each other to find out who the best Disney villain is. The host based their discussion on six categories to determine who the best Disney villain is. One, the villain's purpose. Two, their motivation. Three, how does their lair look? Four, their minions and are they um, reliable and dependable? Uh, Five, what are the villains willing to do to accomplish their goals? And six, the villain's death scene. And bonus, if the Disney villain has their own song. The podcast has reoccurring conversations around particular villains and how, quote, their personal vendettas just sometimes get the better of them, quote. The Disney villains in each movie are strongly motivated and determined and will do almost anything to accomplish their goals. I would say they are strongly opinionated, regularly self-advocating for their rights and potential to have a happily ever after. Which is another thing. So, Disney villains do not get happy endings. The TV show Once Upon a Time, which is a TV show about Disney and fairy tale characters living in a small town in Maine, does a great job showing each villain's backstory and, for once, exposing the villain side of the stories we know and love. Each villain begins their life generally as a citizen or potential future hero um, or savior, but circumstances. Take them from one bad decision to the next until they decide to become a villain um, and, and become the villain we know them to be from their respective Disney or fairy tale movies or stories. Most have good intentions, but they let the darkness get the better of them. And Once Upon a Time often reiterates a, f- a couple of quotes, um, one of them being, Villains don't get happy endings. Um, which is from season three if you're interested and in the parody musical twisted the untold story of a royal vizier the citizens of the magic kingdom list the many ways disney villains have faced their end and try to predict which ending jafar will face um assuming that you know jafar is not from the aladdin movie necessarily but that story still pans out and so they tell each other Quote, he could be skewered by a sailing ship, or hanged in a tangled jungle vines, or eaten by hyenas, or he'll plummet to his death from a castle, a clock, or a cliff, which is at the six minute and fifteen minute, six minute and fifteen second mark. Um, and you can see that parody musical on YouTube if you type Team Star Kid Twisted. Um, and all of all of the different death scenes that i just mentioned are different endings for different disney villains and obviously we can tell that they're not very happy ones right and so disney villains come from many different backgrounds some are from worlds of fantasy and magic And I would say oftentimes in those scenarios, they embrace the magical sides of themselves. So you have like the evil queen from Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. You have Jafar from Aladdin, Maleficent from Sleeping Beauty, and so on. Um, Others are not magical, but they may come from a place in which magic exists, like Gaston from Beauty and the Beast, or Captain Hook from Peter Pan, or Lady Tremaine from Cinderella and more. Um, And then there are some Disney villains like Claude Frollo from The Hunchback Notre Dame, Cruella Deville from 101 Dalmatians, uh, Sean Yu from Mulan, who do not have magical properties and come from the same world we all share, which is a world without magic. And I guess I wouldn't say that we don't have magic here. There's different forms of magic, there's different definitions of it, but in the sense of magical well, I can't even say that. So in the sense of just this fantasy version of magic where literally anything is possible and you can use magic to do anything, you know, maybe we don't live in that type of world. That's what I, is what I guess I'll say. Um, so many, if not all Disney villains are also scene stealers. According to Mark Helmsing's, this is nor, This is no ordinary apple. Learning to fail Oh my gosh, spectacularly from the queer pedagogy of Disney's Diva Villains, from the Disney Culture and Curriculum book edited by Jennifer Sandlin and Julie Garland, Disney villain bodies take up the full display of the shot, and the colors and lighting change drastically to highlight their disruptive arrival in the film. So the impact of Disney villains as showstoppers and scene stealers is evident in their large fan base through social media platforms such as YouTube, Tumblr, and Instagram. Uh, and I'm sure there are many more Disney villains have a quote, surprisingly high number of viral videos on YouTube that remix and reimagine the diva villain in contemporary tropes from Todd Rick Hall's spell spellblock tango to Oh My Disney's counting stars, which is a villainy villainous version of One Republic's counting stars uh, quote. And that is from that quote is from the same book. And Team Starkid created the full-length musical parody called Twisted, the Untold Story of a Royal Vizier on YouTube. Um, they also have a separate one uh, called Annie, I," which is about Anakin Skywalker from Star Wars. Uh, but the Twisted, Untold Story of a Royal Vizier is about the Disney villain Jafar from Aladdin and aside from youtube social media platforms like tumblr pinterest instagram and others are ways for fans and artists to share their disney villain fan art with others around the world disney villain fan art glamorizes villain characters and brings to light the human qualities we relate and feel strongly connected to like selfishness vulnerability confidence vain and more and in society, these qualities are often suppressed because of societal expectations, but I believe are a natural part of being human. Disney Villain's Minority overrepresentation. Being the pop culture icon that it is, the Walt Disney Company has had to change and develop their productions to match what is considered popular and entertaining in a particular era. Many of the older Disney films dating before 1990 showed the journey of a man or a woman defeating a villain to get to their happily ever after, whatever that may be. Oftentimes, the man saves the day, even if the movie is based on the journey of a woman, like Sleeping Beauty, The Little Mermaid, Snow White, and The Seven Dwarfs, and etc. etc. I can go on. But for the past 30 years, I would say, having a person of color as a main character was not common, and even in the modern day, it is not nearly as common as it could be, in my opinion. And I would say until the movie Aladdin premiered, there were very few characters across, I would say, all the Disney animated films that identified as people of color. The character Tiger Lily from Peter Pan is likely one of the only characters of color with a, with a significant part in a Disney film before 1992. And she didn't even talk Um, I mean, her tribe did, and it is very racist. But separate story, different time. Moving on. In most Disney animated films, Disney villains identify with one or more marginalized minority groups, whereas their Disney hero counterparts may possibly identify with no marginalized groups. So something to think about. There is a pattern of Disney villains who identify with the same minority groups through the 1900s and into the 2000s. Villains who are twice the age of their Disney hero counterpart like Lady Tremaine from Cinderella, Captain Hook from Peter Pan, Mother Gothel from Tangled. Um, Villains who have a unique dialect or foreign accent to their hero counterparts like Jafar from Aladdin, Sher Khan from The Jungle Book, Governor Ratcliffe from Pocahontas, Uh, villains who do not fall into the standards of being beautiful and thin like ursula from the little mermaid the queen of hearts from alice in wonderland and hades from hercules and many more that i will be discussing right now okay so we're gonna start with gender so the the subheading is gender there are more than just two gender identities so sorry if you don't believe it but this is my paper this is what I believe in and I believe there are more than two genders okay so we're gonna just accept that and move forward okay so over the years Disney animated films such as Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, Sleep and Beauty have expressed society's expectations of women throughout history I would say before the 1990s, female characters were shown in Disney animated films as people who could only cook and clean or take care of children or animals and also talk to animals Uh, like Wendy from Peter Pan, Princess Aurora from Sleeping Beauty, Cinderella from Cinderella. And, you know, you kind of get the idea. Around the 1990s, Disney animated films started showing strong female characters who did not need a man to come and save the day, although the man would still come and save the day sorry I didn't mean to sound uh, so negative but anyway uh, providing strong female characters for children to look up to provided children I would say especially girls little girls opportunities to think beyond someone who cooks or cleans and that was my that was my decade um, as the importance of feminism women's rights and equality have grown over the years so have the independent strength and depth of female characters in Disney princesses especially I would say. In more recent Disney films like Frozen, Tangled, and Moana female characters are no longer cleaning and cooking but are going on adventures and being part of the battles only male characters would participate in in the past. So throughout the decades Disney animated films have shown Disney female characters as dependent on their male counterparts to lead them to their happily ever after as I had just previously mentioned. I would say even in the past 10 years, with Disney portraying strong female characters, the female characters are often saved by male characters, like I mentioned. Examples being Flynn Rider, who helped Rapunzel escape her tower and find her uh, biological parents. Sorry if that's a spoiler for you. Um, Aladdin, who freed Princess Jasmine from the confines of the palace walls. Uh, even though she technically did escape over them herself initially, uh, but I guess he led to her being able to leave the walls. Uh, but I will say Aladdin is the main character of that movie, so that I guess that could we could we could look that over. Kristoff uh, who helped Anna find her sister Elsa in Frozen, and I'm sure there are many more uh, examples I could give. So Disney female villains are quite the opposite. They are in charge. They advocate for their own happy endings. Sometimes female villains become villains because of their independence and wanting to be something more than what society tells them to be, which is an obedient woman dependent on a man. And again, this is my opinion, right? And this is my interpretation of the movies. I don't always think that that's what these movies are portraying. Obviously, that's not the intent of what they're trying to portray, but that's just... I see the story, but I also see this. Um, in the parody musical Twisted the Untold Story of a Royal Vizier, Ursula from The Little Mermaid is able to share her untold story with the audience. And according to Ursula, in this parody, she was the ruler of the ocean until her brother, King Triton, quote, held the antiquated notion that women should be seen and never heard. Quote, uh, you can find that on YouTube, Team Star Kid Twisted at the 1 hour 37 and 48 second mark. 48 second mark excuse me ursula goes on to say that king triton quote dethroned me then disowned me and on top of that rezoned me to the outskirts of the kingdom in a cave quote all because she was a female ruler and that line happens right after the previous one And in my opinion, all Disney animated films take place in a patriarchal society where Disney female villains are accused of being villains because they are independent, take action, and advocate for their beliefs and dreams. Have you ever noticed that there are no Disney mothers, but all the Disney fathers are still alive? Yeah. And I know there are some examples where that's not the case, but often the case when there are, when there is only one parent, it's never a single mother. It's usually a single father. Anyway... Um, even Milan, who is, who technically would be considered a bad person, uh, but not necessarily a villain in her movie, uh, because of the fact that she committed treason when she stole her father's armor, ran away from home, impersonated a soldier, deceived her commanding officer, dishonored the Chinese army, and destroyed the emperor's palace. Oh, Okay. I got that out in one breath. And you can find that in on the Mulan movie at 1 hour, 15 minutes, and 57 seconds. You are welcome. As a Chinese woman, Mulan was expected to be quiet and obedient. Uh, Her character was considered outspoken and and dishonor to her family name. She could have had her story twisted by others into a story of a villain rather than a hero, like how Ursula is perceived in the parody musical, Twisted. Uh, If not for saving all of China from Shan Yu and being recognized by the Emperor... For it, Mulan may have turned into a story about a villain. It's just something to think about, right? And I would say while the patriarchal dominance of Disney animated films may perpetuate some women into being perceived as villains, the opposite effect can happen with men being perceived as heroes when they should be villains. And an example is the movie Moana. Maui is seen as a funny character and hero, but his actions represent those of a villain. And I don't mean any disrespect. I love The Rock and I love Maui. I think he's very funny, but I came across some things, which I will mention, that kind of make you think of it a little bit differently. It um, doesn't mean that you have to, of course. It's just, you know, something that I found. Um, so the entire movie begins with Maui stealing the heart of the goddess Tefiti for humanity, um, which in the movie is literally the one minute, the first minute of the film, and the goddess Tafiti's heart held the power to create even life itself. And she, quote, shared it with the world. Quote, again, happens in the first minute. Maui technically had no right to steal Tafiti's life source. Like, he literally ripped her heart out of her chest. Even though she's, you know, a goddess, like a a, a being, you know, um, a higher power than, than a human. Um, but anyway, so he takes her heart right out of her chest her life source which was already shared with everyone including humanity um and i think he wanted he wanted he stole it to give it to humanity even though it was already shared with humanity so i don't really understand that logic anyway with the heart of tefiti um when the heart of tefiti was taken tefiti disintegrated and a lava demon known as takah was born plunging the world into a dark age Throughout the whole movie, Maui is seen as a selfish demigod with a lack of emotion and no sense of vulnerability, which in and of itself can be seen as portraying the expectations of men in society to be tough and show no emotion, right? So when Maui first meets Moana, he sings to her to trick her into a cave, traps her there, attempts to steal her canoe to escape the island they are trapped on, and basically like starve her out to death because she's stuck in a cave. Uh, which happens at the 38-minute mark. And it can be said that, quote, Moana is about women overcoming the obstacle of men, quote, as uh, as Moana does with Maui throughout the entire movie with his continuous attempts to get rid of her by pushing her off the canoe and attempting to sacrifice her to the giant crab to get his fish hook back. And... um somehow Maui is not seen as a villain rather he's seen as a hero but if Maui was a woman what are the chances a female Maui would be seen as a hero and not a mean and bitter woman if she did the same things right and I forgot to mention where I got that quote so let me just backtrack a little bit um so the quote about Moana being a movie about women overcoming the obstacle of men was a YouTube video called The Five Reasons Maui is the Villain of Moana, Disney Theory, um, by Network1901. So if you want to watch that, I don't think it's very long, but I thought it was very interesting to have a different perspective, and I actually didn't think of it in that way until I watched that video. So definitely worth it if um, you're open to um, questioning how you felt about Maui to begin with sexuality who can romantically love whom in a disney film and why and a side note again this is my own opinion my own interpretation i believe anybody can love whoever they want and if you don't believe it just deal with it and listen to it and don't um reach out to me about this topic or gender identities because these are things i believe in you're here to listen to me talk about them And we can all put aside our differences and learn from one another. Okay. So while American society has been evolving their knowledge and awareness of other identities outside of heterosexual norms, Disney animated films still show a very heterosexual form of romantic love. I would say almost all Disney animated films that have any form of a love story or love interest show a man with a woman. Mulan could have been one of those movies that turned out differently in that um, uh, there's a couple examples. So one would be uh, Paint, P-A-I-N-T, like the paint on your wall, uh, has this series on YouTube called After Ever After, which is a acapella um, singing about happily ever afters in in our reality for Disney characters. And in After Ever After 2, um, he portrays Disney princesses after the happy endings and um Disney audiences find out that Mulan finds struggle in balancing her life as a woman and pretending to be a man and decides to change her gender or change his gender, uh, which is at the twenty second mark if you're looking at the After Ever After Two video. And this would have totally changed Disney's standard of only male and female genders and would have also, provided opportunities to explore alternative forms of romance to the standard heterosexual one Disney always portrays. In the TV show Once Upon a Time, excuse me, uh, the character Mulan identifies as a lesbian, and in season three, episode three, you see her struggle with telling the love of her life. Um, I don't know if I should give spoilers about Once Upon a Time but okay I won't so she struggles with telling the love of her life uh, another princess how she feels about her other fairy tale characters oh I don't know if I should even say these things um well I guess if you're gonna watch once upon a time I'm sorry I'm gonna spoil it so maybe skip ahead a few seconds but um okay so here I go so other fairy tale characters like Alice from Alice in Wonderland Dorothy from the Wizard of Oz and Little Red Red Riding Hood from Little Red Riding Hood and the Big Bad Wolf, um, also identify as lesbian in the Once Upon a Time TV series. And if you skipped ahead because of spoilers, you can come back to this time. Um, And so currently, and by currently, I mean two years ago when I wrote this paper, um, there are rumors that the Frozen sequel will identify Elsa as a lesbian character, but is not confirmed. And Frozen 2 has been out for a while. um, And at least what I remember, Elsa didn't really have a love interest. It was more about uh, learning about herself and finding out who she is and finding out where she comes from and learning to love herself. That was, that's what I remember from it. But I guess let me know if I miss something. And so in my paper, I wrote Elsa would be the first um, in Disney animated films and a first Disney princess or Disney queen in history to not identify as heterosexual. But I guess we don't know because it was never confirmed nor denied and it was not a prominent part of the movie to even mention it or to even show it, I guess. So yeah. Okay. Um, And while next to no Disney protagonists are assumed to be part of the LGBTQ community, most Disney villains are associated in some way. Uh, Disney villains are rarely seen in any type of love interest or romantic relationship to confirm their sexuality, not that we need to or or should, Um, but there are forms of speaking, forms of body language, uh, and other that hint at the possibility of Disney villains identifying with LGBTQ identities. Ursula from The Little Mermaid is one of the more well-known characters to discuss in this context because of the inspiration for her appearance and demeanor, which was inspired by the drag queen Divine. And you can actually read more about this online. Um, I got my source from AV News. The title of the article is Read This, How Divine Inspired Ursula the Sea Witch by Chris Stark. Um, other popular mentions in Disney queer scholarship are Scar from The Lion King, Jafar from Aladdin, Governor Ratcliffe from Pocahontas, Hades from Hercules, Maleficent from Sleeping Beauty, Lady Tremaine from Cinderella, and the Evil Queen, also known as Grimhilda from Snow White and Seven Dwarfs. And Disney villains teach audiences, particularly queer audiences, quote, how to embrace failure fabulously, quote, and how to not let being queer, frail, and weird keep into indu- keep individuals, particularly queer individuals, quote, from succeeding in the straight normal world of Prince Charming and Aladdin, quote. And um, both of those quotes were from the um, Mark Helmsing article in the Disney Culture and Curriculum book about um, the queer uh, diva villains. And so um, just continuing on that in that essay, I think it's an essay in a book, Uh, Mark Helmsen argues that even though Disney villains are viewed as a, quote, incomprehensible evil, quote, in their respective films, they are really, quote, the victim of social oppression, quote, just like the queer audience viewer and many other audience viewers who identify with marginalized communities. Through the journey and failure of the Disney villain, Disney audience can take away Quote, how to make a queerly happy life out of dejection and abandonment. Quote, life goes on despite the failures. Disney villains teach viewers that failure is inevitable and can happen in anything we do, even the things we strive the hardest for. For example, um, and this is from the same essay, quote, Ursula lives in a dark grotto still under the sea. With the annoyingly happy singing fish and crustaceans, um, but in her own private space, quote. She was banished, but makes the most of her situation until Ariel arrives, giving her a golden opportunity to strive for something better. Okay, and here's the big one, race. Why does ethnicity and skin or fur color matter? Disney animated films are predominantly films starring white protagonists with United States dialects and villains with different skin colors and non-United States dialects. Even films starring characters of color have the protagonist speaking with the United States accent and the villain speaking with what seems to be a foreign dialect. So why are he- Disney heroes, even in recent animated films, depicted as white and or with United States dialects, like they're American, even if they're not from America. And why are Disney villains represented as the exact opposite in those same animated films? So different forms of Disney fan art and Disney parodies have brought to light the big topic of race and skin color in two ways. Disney parodies and some forms of Disney fan art represent and call out race and skin color diversity in Disney animated films. Disney fan art specifically shows how race and skin diversity could be better and more widely represented if reflected in today's society. In particular, the lack of racial and skin color diversity in hero characters and the overrepresentation of racial and skin color diversity in villain characters. The parody musical Twisted the Untold Story of Royal Vizier touches on this with their introductory song about the Magic Kingdom or Disneyland when one of the citizens asks, quote, why is everyone in the kingdom white, quote, which is at the four minute and five second mark. All the citizens look around at each other, realizing everyone is white and blame everyone being white on wealth and the villain Jafar. Another example is in the YouTube parody video After Ever After, which um, is a singing video where the artist Paint portrays what happens to Disney princesses after the happy endings Disney audiences know. In the song, Paint portrays Princess Jasmine from the movie Aladdin and sings how Aladdin has been mistaken for a terrorist by the American government and pleads the United States to set him free from interrogation, which is in the first After Ever After video at the one minute and six second mark, and you can find that on YouTube. Other forms of media like fan art have entire Tumblr and Pinterest pages dedicated to what is called Disney race-bending. Changing a Disney character's original race and skin color from the respective animated film to a completely different one. Now, Disney animated films, and really just children movies in general, I found, um, tend to use non standard dialects and accents to voice villains. And there's um, an article about this that I had referenced called, oh, where is it? Why do cartoon villains speak in foreign accents by the. Atlantic, and so you can find that. That actually came out just a couple years ago, so it must have been right when I was writing this paper, Um, and so in this uh, paper, the example that they use is The Lion King, and the villain of the movie Scar, quote, masterfully voices scheming and betrayal using a British accent that contrasts with the all-American intonation of the ruddy-maned hero Simba, quote, Uh, which I got from... The Children's Culture and Disney's Animated Films uh, chapter in the book, The Mouse That Roared. Uh, and that book literally is just touching on everything that I talk about. It's basically my paper, but in a book. So definitely worth the check out or buy. Yeah, I would buy it. Um, sociolinguistic ling, oh, Sociolinguist, I'm sorry, Calvin Gidney, who is an associate professor in child study and human development, Notice Scar's henchmen, the hyenas, quote, spoke in either African-American English or English with a Spanish accent, quote. And then they go on to say, quote, henchmen or assistants to villains often spoke in dialects associated with low socioeconomic status, including working class Eastern European dialects or regional American dialects, quote. Um, and they talked about the research on language patterns in anime and children's TV shows in the, um, in the article I mentioned above uh, and also the, the book I mentioned. So, Guinea continues to say that, quote, villainy is marked just by sounding different, quote, um, which I believe could partially explain why Disney villains sound so different from their hero counterparts. But what does this say about Walt Disney and United States perspectives on foreigners? In the United States, right? There are many characters throughout all Disney animated films, heroes, villains, psychics, parents, and and more, who fall into a pattern of similar or same racial and ethnic identities. Parents are not all one ethnicity, psychics are not all one ethnicity, and the list goes on. So why are they often portrayed time and again to be the same? As an example, I guess, most Disney heroes are portrayed to be white with their villain counterparts identifying as people of color. Um, people with brown skin, green skin, purple skin, blue skin, you get the, you get the idea. Um, the exception um, being, what was it um, either a character who you're supposed to believe is the good guy, but then they trick you, or, uh, i want to say a woman well, i'll have to do some um, backlogging on that though but anyway so even in remakes of fairy tales and disney animated films characters that are not gender or race specific will only be portrayed by a specific race and gender um like you see cinderella portrayed as being white with blonde hair and so that's the way that she's always portrayed but I will say that 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 does change same thing with you know Sleeping Beauty and Snow White is portrayed as being you know fair-skinned and red lips and black hair you know like there's certain characteristics right in the tv show Once Upon a Time Characters normally viewed as white, so examples are Merlin from The Sword in the Stone and Rapunzel from the fairy tale Rapunzel, different from the Disney version, identify as people of color. Once Upon a Time shows and proves that most Disney characters, with the exception of films like Mulan, Moana, and Aladdin being ethnically specific films, can be portrayed in infinite ethnicities, shapes, and sizes. Rogers and Hammerstein's 1997 version of Cinderella, um, which is you know what I mentioned earlier, coming back to, is um, does hold a strong and racially diverse cast in which it is often portrayed in what is often portrayed as a white character film. So like Disney's Cinderella, you know, being white with blonde hair, and the live remake in 2015 being white with blonde hair. Once Upon a Time even portrayed the same. Um and I was also surprised that nobody ever questioned the how um the king and queen ended up with an Asian son. Um, I mean I'm not questioning that. That's kind of uh, similar to my own backstory and my own upbringing. But I just thought it was interesting that nobody, everyone was like, oh yeah, that's totally normal. Like Whoopi Goldberg and um. Oh my gosh, I'm spacing on his name. I apologize. Uh, Victor, right? No oh jeez anyway um and let's see where was i uh a white actor versus an actor of color playing cinderella the prince lady tremaine fairy godmother and more does not change the purpose or the plot of the story so why doesn't it happen more often age Why do Disney films constantly frame children against adults? So, everyone knows Disney produces films for a mostly child based audience with like adult parent humor here and there to keep parents engaged. Animated films like Peter Pan, The Little Mermaid, Hercules, and more are coming-of-age films showing the journey of the main protagonist from a child into a young adult. And Disney often portrays adults as villains in these movies who create obstacles and barriers to the young hero's journey. The villains attempt to stop them from growing into the person they are trying or wanting to become. Like Hades from Hercules or Maui from Moana, and more. If you if you consider Maui a villain, like I mentioned previously, and they create barriers, so it's more challenging for the hero to achieve their dreams. Um, like Doctor Facilier and the Princess and the Frog and Mother Gothel from Tangled, and they purposely abuse them through, or or I guess they purposely abuse them through their parental rights as adults. So like Lady Tremaine. Um, you know, against Cinderella or the evil queen against Snow White and more. In Disney, villains are almost always portrayed as adult characters, many of them being twice as old as the protagonist. You know, like Captain Hook from Peter Pan, Lady Tremaine from Cinderella, Mother Gothel from Tangled, and etc. In chapter 15, Learning to Live as a Disney Villain by Jessica Kirker in the book Teaching with Disney, uh, edited by Julie Garland and Jennifer Sandlin, in... Quote, in Disney films, older women are backgrounded as loving, uh, parentheses, preferably diseased, parentheses, mothers, or, if powerful and independent, vilified as evil femme fatales or ugly hags. Quote, so with the idea of having young heroes for young children to identify with in these films, why not also have young villains and antagonists? Reiterating that only adults or stepmothers are bad people can create a Disney stereotype that all adults and stepmothers are villains in Disney animated films. This can be, or could be, or is impacted in real life through unconscious bias, social biases uh, individuals have that they are not consciously aware of. With the reiteration that adults and stepmothers are often bad people, there could be some form of, of unconscious bias alerting individuals that adults and stepmothers can't be trusted ideals of beauty where are the realistic body proportions disney animated films hold a high standard when it comes to body image and beauty i would say all disney princesses must fit the mold of being beautiful and slim Uh, i know uh, people talked about moana being a, a little bit more of a more realistic body proportion but but she still is fairly tiny and all Disney Princes princes, excuse me, must be physically fit and taller than their female love interest. The requirements to work at any Disney theme park as a character from a Disney animated film is, I believe, one example of how Disney's standards of beauty and physical appearance are reinforced. According to the article, 13 inscrutable requirements to be a princess in Disney parks, which is on Disney fanatic are, um, or according to the article, uh, to be a Disney princess at a Disney theme park, one must be between the height of five, four and five, seven, which is a very small amount, a uh, small range be between the ages of 18 and 27. Also a small range, be a dress size of 10 or less which is very small to me and be able to smile at all times quote because princesses are never sad or upset quote so this particular example reinforces that only certain women who meet the physical criteria above can be a Disney princess and once someone grows ages frowns or packs on a few pounds They can no longer be a Disney princess. So that would be me. I'm actually too short to be a Disney princess. um, Because I'm only 5'2". So there you go. This, along with the standard of how characters in Disney animated films are portrayed, often reinforce society's standards of beauty and hero roles and the exact opposite in in villain roles. I don't know if I could be a villain though. I feel like I'm too short all around. But I feel like most people are on my height to begin with. So I don't know. Anyway, um, I guess Beauty and the Beast would be one of the contradictions to Disney standards of beauty. For women, I guess you would see that as being slim with big eyes and long flowing hair and a petite figure. And for men, it would be um, being tall, physically fit, and having bigger proportions like hands and feet than their female counterpart. And the contradiction with this is with Gaston, who is supposedly the definition of beauty and him being the beat the villain while the beast a man cursed to look like a monster is the female heroine's love interest so beauty of the beast shows that not all people who look like monsters are bad people and that not all good looking people or i guess what is considered good looking by society are good people And it changed the dynamic of past Disney animated films and is even reinvented later in Frozen with Prince Hans being the main villain when audience viewers may have assumed he would be the hero who would marry Princess Anna. And so from the majority of Disney animated films, even after Beauty and the Beast was released, heroes are showcased as attractive and villains are showcased as unattractive. Um, even though I know people would disagree with, with characters like Maleficent and other who, who are very beautiful um, in in society's expectations and standards of what beauty is. And so there are a few exceptions in both hero and villain categories, but not enough to stop the reinforcement that characters who are considered unattractive or ugly are often made out to be a Disney villain, and characters who are considered attractive are often assumed and confirmed to be Disney heroes. So... Villain characters in side and sidekicks like Cinderella's stepsisters, Yizma from The Emperor's New Groove, Clayton from Tarzan, LeFu from Beauty and the Beast, and more ooze a villain essence from the first time audiences see them on the screen because of Disney's standards and predictability whenever we see a character who is not the stereotypical stereotypically attractive character audience may make the assumption that the character will be the villain and often with disney that's true quasimodo from the hunchback of notre dame and the beast from beauty and the beast are the few hero characters who do not fit into society's stereotype of an attractive individual however the beast ends up turning into a handsome prince or i guess handsome in the in the stereotypical sense i don't consider him to be handsome in in my own personal ideals of who of beauty but he does end up turning into a handsome prince so realistically of the two only quasimodo fits into the mold of being a non-standard disney hero when you look at it and with villain characters and their physical appearance uh, physical appearance body fat or lack thereof can play a big and often unpredictable factor in disney films overweight characters in disney animated films for example have never played a hero or protagonist role even looking at mainstream tv shows and movies the topic of body positivity and seeing actors with larger areas of body fat is not common in disney animated films male villain characters are either very thin to the point of scrawny like Jafar from Aladdin, Dr. Facilier from Princess and the Frog, Scar from The Lion King, and more, or big and bulky like Clayton from Tarzan or Gaston from The Beast or Shan from Mulan. Um, And in the same sense, female villain characters are often um, one or the other, so in the same sense. So when you're looking at female villains who are often super slim, you're looking at Maleficent from Sleeping Beauty, uh, Cruella de Vil from 101 Dalmatians, and so forth, and um, f- uh, I guess the opposite would be um, female villains like Ursula from The Little Mermaid and the Queen of Hearts from Alice in Wonderland, who um, are seen as technically overweight. Um, But there are very few overweight villains in Disney animated films overall. And um, those who are considered... So in terms of female characters in Disney animated films, those who are considered to be on the bigger side are often grandmothers to the protagonists. In the same way, male overweight characters are often sidekicks to heroes or villains, like Smee from Peter Pan, or Chin Po from Mulan, or Gus from Cinderella, and more. Or their fathers, two protagonist characters, like the Sultan from Aladdin, Maurice from Beauty and the Beast, King Hubert from Sleeping Beauty, and more. Mental health and disability. So Disney does not often touch on mental health in their animated films And if they do so, it is done discreetly and not directly. An example of this is in The Many Adventures of Winnie the Pooh. Each character expresses certain mental health disorders that fans have pointed out through the Fan Theories wiki website. And according to this website, Winnie the Pooh has an eating disorder. Piglet has anxiety. Eeyore has depression. Tigger has um, ADHD, attention deficient hyperactivity disorder. And Rabbit has OCD, uh, obsessive compulsive disorder. And so the awareness of said mental disorders is never acknowledged by the characters themselves. However, it's clear to see the symptoms in each character and why audiences may assume such things. For example, Winnie the Pooh is known for eating honey frequently and in large quantities, which could potentially be an indicator of an eating disorder if you were looking for it. Oftentimes, remakes or retellings of certain Disney stories and characters can show audiences a more serious version of a character struggling with mental health and internal conflict. And one of the best examples of this is the character Alice from Alice in Wonderland. In the live remake of Alice Through the Looking Glass, for example, Alice wakes up in the middle of her quest in a mental institution, which is um, one hour and nine minutes in. To the movie. And this scene in particular shows society going against what Alice believes and knows to be true, which I think does happen with a lot of renditions of Alice um in Alice in Wonderland. Just because when you look at society, we would say, Oh, that's not true. That would never happen. That's impossible, right? Instead of possible. And the mental institution and whoever brought her there are claiming Alice must have mental health problems because talking cats and Mad Hatters don't exist, right? And in the movie, the staff member lists off her symptoms, stating that she is prone to fantasy and has, quote, the textbook case of female hysteria, quote, uh, which is at the one one hour and ten minute mark in the movie. And even though the audience knows her adventures and stories to be real and true, the characters in the movie who are not from Wonderland do not know this. Uh, another example is in season seven of the TV series Once Upon a Time, um, which takes place in Seattle, where all fairy tale characters no longer remember who they really are and live alternate lives. And this is only in season seven. Only season seven takes place in, in Seattle. The, all the other seasons take place in Maine. And so in this um, season seven, we have Alice, who goes by Tilly in Seattle and she's starting to remember who she really is um, when she stops taking her pills or when she stops taking Tilly's pills and at the surface without the background knowledge Tilly is really a completely different character named Alice um, but she doesn't know that and it may seem like someone is having mental health concerns because they stopped taking their medication when you're looking at it from A citizen in Seattle instead of looking at it from Alice, who has been cursed to live this life of Tilly. And in the beginning of the Once Upon a Time spinoff series titled Once Upon a Time in Wonderland, Alice is introduced um, to the series in a mental institution. Uh, In it, she had recently returned home from her adventures in Wonderland and she told her family of the adventures she went on and the people she had met and her father thought she was going mad and decided to lock her in a mental institution where which she later breaks out of to go back to wonderland and actually you do find out later that she decided it was it would be better to go to the mental into mental institution excuse me than to not have her family believe in her Uh, which is also i guess another interesting topic and In all the portrayals of Alice across movies, stories, TV shows, Alice is often misunderstood by the people around her. She's a curious adventure seeker who believes in the impossible and doesn't need someone else's help to get things done. And I guess aside from Alice and the assumption of the characters from The Many Adventures of Winnie the Pooh, there are very few Disney characters who show signs of mental health issues. Um, whether those are confirmed or just assumed, right? And so Cruella DeVille is a character who is made out to have mental health concerns in almost every version remake of the character, which I find very fascinating. And, and that's maybe why she's one of my favorites, aside from the fact that she wants to kill puppies. I, I really don't like that, but but her personality is really interesting to me. In the live remake of 101 Dalmatians and the sequel 102 Dalmatians, Cruella has a a clear obsession to kill Dalmatian puppies for her fur coat collection. At the beginning of the live remake sequel, uh, 102 Dalmatians, Cruella is seen in a mental institution for wanting to kill the Dalmatian puppies from the end of the 101 movie. In the TV show, Once Upon a Time... Uh season four, I believe. Corolla Deville loves killing people, animals, and anything that is considered alive, which is pretty extreme in my opinion, but um it makes for an interesting plot, I guess. And according in in the season four of Once Upon a Time, according to Corilla Deville's mother, Corolla has had this passion for killing since she was a little girl when she killed her father after that she grew up killing all of her mother's future partners and as a adult as an adult killed her mother and her mother's dalmatians making a fur coat out of the dogs which is very interesting um and and there's no actual explanation for why she is that way and why she decides to do those things and and i think she's the only villain character who you don't necessarily feel empathy or sympathize with um i think she's also the only character who doesn't get to restart or get or get a second chance so to speak or one of the only ones at least um and in the parody musical twisted the untold story of royal vizier carla deville does make a brief cameo while the other disney villains are telling jafar how their story became twisted from the truth so i i gave the example of ursula before but um, they, the villains talk of how they wanted to be invited, which is Maleficent to the party, uh, save the love of their life, which is Gaston, advocate for citizens and help people, which is scar and more, um, which if you're watching that parody on YouTube, you would want to go to the one hour and 40 minute mark to see that. And then all of a sudden Corel de shows up to their gathering saying, quote, I only wish to have a coat made out of puppies, quote. Um, And then Jafar and the other Disney villains are disgusted by her to her surprise and make remarks while she rushes off stage saying, just leave. Why would you do that? That's insane. They're just babies, Um, which is at the one hour and 41 minute mark. So with all the examples mentioned above, it's, it's clear that Disney animated films have not touched on topics of mental health and disability. Many of the examples above were, or many of the examples I previously mentioned, excuse me were from live remakes and parodies of Disney animated films and characters, and not from Disney itself, um, even though Disney does own the rights to a lot of them. And fan art and fan theories are big promoters of Disney characters identifying with mental health disorders. On social media platforms like Pinterest and Tumblr, almost every single Disney character can be identified as having a medical condition or medical health disorder. So why is mental health such a big identity in fan theories and fan art, but not in the actual Disney animated movies? And I guess there are there are many people in the world who identify with physical disabilities, uh, invisible disabilities, learning disabilities, and mental disabilities. And I'm not even sure if that's the right terminology. Uh, I'm just not as familiar and and. Pixar movies such as Finding Nemo and Finding Dory have many characters who identify with a physical, somewhat invisible learning or mental disability. Um, however, in Disney animated films, Dopey from Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, Captain Hook from Peter Pan, actually just the Seven Dwarfs in general, and also Quasimodo from The Hunchback of No Dame are a few of the only Disney characters associated with any form of a physical, invisible or learning disability. And why is that? And all of those movies came out in the 1900s. There's nothing recent um, as far as I I guess I'm able to pick out, but I'm also not the expert on this topic. And so why are all heroes, sidekicks, villains, and more always shown or mostly shown as physically able-bodied with perfect vision and hearing? I always wonder that because I'm someone who wears contact lenses and I would wonder if growing up in a... Um, in a forest or other like how I would have been able to navigate without glasses or contact lenses that's just me though Um, what about characters with missing limbs like Captain Hook what about characters with mental disabilities are challenging to control without proper medication or other Um, and I actually saw an example of this recently on Disney Plus with the marvel tv show runaways where the the teens ran away one of them didn't one of them does wear glasses she didn't take her pills with her that she used to help her with her anxiety and it just kind of showed how she spiraled um and how she was handling going cold turkey and and her withdrawal and i thought that was very interesting and something that you never see you just never see like when people run away or when people have to flee because they're wanted or, or other you don't see what that does to them when they you know don't bring their contact lens case or when they don't bring their pills or when they don't bring you know like menstrual tampons or pads or or whatever you know like you don't see what happens um it's and it's just you know you they're just perfect and they don't need nothing and they can live without their morning routine and brushing their teeth and and whatever maybe but anyway different once Upon a Time, Bridging Disney Villains with Real Life. So the TV show, Once Upon a Time, is a seven-season series about fairy tale characters, mainly from Disney animated films, who have been cursed to our world and live interchangeably between our world and other fantasy worlds like Neverland, Wonderland, Oz, Agrabah, and more. If anything, Once Upon a Time has taught viewers that quote the world has failed to allow the villains to live and coexist quote uh, and the quote is from the this is nori apple by mark helmsing that i've previously mentioned throughout this episode and episode one so when a new villain arrives in the series there's an episode dedicated to that villain's backstory and the backstory proves to audience viewers that villains were born into the world like any other individual and due to circumstances, events, and more, these individuals walk down a dark path resulting in bad behavior and the title of a villain. And so what I'm going to be talking about for the next however many minutes, um, and I guess I'll have to make a marker for you, uh, will give lots of spoilers throughout the whole, the entire series so if you don't want any spoilers about once upon a time then I would skip ahead um, and since I'm actually recording this right now I will add a little clip after I say this couple few words um, that will tell you what part to skip to if you don't want a spoiler so feel free to skip ahead to around the 1 hour and 19 minute mark. Maybe like 1 hour and 19 minute and a half mark. Evil isn't born, it's made. So one of the main themes throughout the TV series is that evil isn't born, it's made. Which I believe was first said in season 3 episode 20. Um, I wrote that it was at the 34 minute mark if you're watching that particular episode. So... Hopefully that's correct. So each season has a dedicated episode to the villain's backstory, which is what I just said. And uh, the backstory gives audience viewers insight into the villain's journey and goals. So Stiltskin is the one exception to this, as his backstory is revealed like little by little, I would say minuscule by minuscule, throughout the entirety of the seven seasons. But characters like the Evil Queen from So White and the Seven Dwarfs, um, which I'll be referring to to her by her real name which is regina in in this series in this world and then um captain hook from peter pan and ursula from the little mermaid are initially seen as vile villain characters they ruin the lives of their enemies to make themselves happy and the longer the show progresses the more we see these so-called villain characters weren't born wanting to ruin the lives of others their worlds were crushed they wanted others to feel the same way they did or worse And an example is in season one of Once Upon a Time, a younger version of Regina told a young child named Snow White that she loves the stable boy, even though she's in an arranged marriage with Snow White's father. Snow White then tells this secret to Regina's mother, who then goes and kills the stable boy in front of Regina. And since then, Regina has hated Snow White for revealing her secret love and and vowed, excuse me, to make her pay for what she did by basically ruining her love, um, in a way, by either um, killing the prince or by putting Snow White herself into a deep sleep, whatever way is going to make her pay, so to speak. I just said so to speak so many times, I apologize. So some characters from Once Upon a Time, like the Wicked Witch of the West um, from The Wizard of Oz, and in this story, her real name is Zelina, so I'll refer to her as Zelina. And the Queen of Hearts from Alice in Wonderland, and she goes by the name Cora, so I'll use the name Cora, were oppressed and verbally abused to believe they're evil, or in Zelina's case, wicked, hence the name Wicked Witch. And I guess there was an idea that they deserved to be miserable. So Zelina, for example, was born with magic magic she couldn't control but only used for good things and the people of oz including her father believed her to be wicked and oppressed her in the believing she was a wicked person who didn't deserve happiness because of her magic uh, which is very similar to the musical wicked um, except in the musical wicked she wasn't she was green whereas in once upon a time she turns green later so Sometimes, as Once Upon a Time shows, the darkness comes out when people lose the thing or, or person they love most, like in the example with Regina and, her, and the stable boy being killed in front of her as a young, as a I would say a teenager young woman. Other times, like in the example with Zelina, the darkness comes out from being oppressed and bullied with no concept of what it's like to feel love, as um, Zelina was often told that she's wicked because she has magic that you know she was born with and that she used for good things but people never accepted her for and so villain characters can become desperate to be happy or to receive the love and happiness they may have previously had but lost in season seven for example rapunzel sacrifices her freedom for her husband to be cured of a sickness and her daughters to live in a home and well fed and so she um I guess, promises Mother Gothel that she will do whatever it takes to cure her husband of the sickness, to make sure that her family lives in a good home and a stable environment, and lo and behold, that that promise came at the expense of Rapunzel's freedom in a tower. So years later, when she escapes her tower, Rapunzel finds her husband remarried, not knowing that Rapunzel was even still alive and now has a stepdaughter named Ella, who is later known as Cinderella. And so Rapunzel's two daughters are now seen as Cinderella's or are, are now seeing Cinderella's mother as their own mother, since Rapunzel was locked in tower for most of their childhood and they never saw her. So to get the life that she had back um, with her husband and children, she poisons Cinderella's mother, and um, then you kind of see her as Lady Tremaine, right? Where she was Rapunzel Tremaine to begin with, um, but lost that life, came back into it. So Cinderella, in Cinderella's story, she's seen as Cinderella's stepmother. And Rapunzel is a character who was initially a hero, but turned into a villain to get her family back and be happy again. All characters can have those same or similar experiences and goals, not just characters who are defined as villains. And Once Upon a Time shows viewers the mistakes and the hard decisions these villains make, even the mistakes and hard decisions heroes make. The difference between heroes and villains making hard decisions is that villains quote make themselves happy at the expense of others quote um and that quote is from season four episode 23 and so they use selfish tactics to get what they want and you actually do see Rapunzel struggle with that um, because she didn't want to poison Cinderella's mother but there were certain things that built up over a short period of time that kind of I would say broke Rapunzel in a way that she ended up doing it. Not all heroes are good, and not all villains are bad. Throughout the seven seasons, Once Upon a Time has portrayed heroes doing terrible things and villains saving lives, which I think is unlike Disney's stereotypical heroes and villains. Audience viewers can see heroes who make mistakes and selfish decisions. However, they can, or they can also see villains siding with heroes and changing their morals to be a better person for their child or their self. There's no black and white box. Every character has their ups and downs and successes and failures and etc. So some examples include, um, and I guess extra spoilers, but if you didn't want spoilers, you wouldn't have been listening to this part anyway, um, Snow White killing the queen of hearts or cora out of vengeance for the death of her mother and nanny pinocchio promising geppetto who is um, pinocchio's father and creator if you're not familiar with the story um so pinocchio promising geppetto he would watch over and raise snow white's daughter but ended up leaving her in the foster care system to travel the world and uh regina who is um snow white's evil stepmother Saving Robin Hood's son from a flying monkey. There's Rumble Stiltskin, uh, who is considered a villain, almost murdering Robin Hood until he discovers Robin Hood's wife is expecting a baby, um, and, and many other examples. And so in season four, episode nine of Once Upon a Time, Snow White and Regina, who's Snow White's evil stepmother, have a conversation about good versus evil, heroes versus villains, villains not getting their happy endings, and and chances at redemption, which is around the 11-minute mark. At this point in the series, I believe Regina believes her efforts to becoming a better person and having a second chance at life are for nothing. And so Snow White tells Regina that she believes in her and that her past will be forgiven through her efforts now. And Snow White tells Regina, quote, You are not all evil and I am not all good. Things are not that simple. Quote, which is at the 12 minute, 12 and a half minute mark. To which Regina replies to Snow White, quote, You're the hero and I'm the villain. Free will be damned. It's all in the book and we both know how it plays out. Quote, Those initially defined as villains in Once Upon a Time strive hard to change their lives for love, for children, and for a good life, where they're not being hunted by um, people they have wronged. And while, and most are given a second chance and sometimes a second second chance at life to redeem themselves and make up for all the bad things they've done in their past. So second chances, road to redemption, second chances especially second second chances are hard to come by and the road to redemption can be long and tiring and this is something that people today face you know when you when you give that cheating ex a second chance and a second second chance and they still cheat on you that was just the only example i can think of but i'm sure there are lots of other examples and so as rumble Stiltskin shows audience viewers change is hard and old habits die hard which i think is very realistic being given the opportunity at a second chance or multiple second chances as i would say is the case for most villains in this series is faith and hope for them to become and continue to be better people characters like rumpelstiltskin struggle with their addiction to power and magic and so they keep losing loved ones to it Just like everyday addictions to alcohol, cigarettes, caffeine, video games, and more, these characters can relate to the mistakes and everyday hardships everyone faces in life, in general. Characters like Rumpelstiltskin and Regina, who don't want to give up their power and magic, sacrifice their relationships and love for their sons and their life partners. Characters like Zelina, aka The Wicked Witch, uh, Maleficent from Sleeping Beauty, Drizella from Cinderella, who's her uh, stepsister, and more, just want someone willing to give them a second chance to prove that they can change and be trusted. And Once Upon a Time, I think, shows every character storyline with opportunities for a happy ending, no matter how many terrible things that character may have done. At first glance, terrible characters are seen ruining lives, killing people for fun, and interfering in relationships and the I guess, smooth process of events, such as weddings, or um, as in the case with Once Upon a Time, often giving birth. Uh, (laughs) Birth is a a very interesting concept with Once Upon a Time, and uh, pregnancies tend to last maybe a month instead of nine months. So, very interesting when magic is involved and interfering. Um, But characters like the snow queen regina zelena maleficent cora aka the queen of hearts and more all did terrible things but in the end wanted to be better people and change uh for a child whether their own child or someone they treated like their own child rumpelstiltskin and captain hook strived to be better individuals for their wives and drisella changed for her sister anastasia um ursula changed when the last memory of her mother was restored to her, and, and there are other examples. So, change is not the best word to use for these transformations, but the point is the reason they all wanted to be something other than the label of a villain is, you know, for someone else. And all the villains wanted to change um, because of, sometimes for, the one person who did believe and love them, which is which, in most of those cases was a child, um, because a child is like a blank slate. Oh, excuse me. Dogs running. Um, okay, so all the villains wanted to change because of the one person who believed in them. And in most scenarios, that person's a child. And the one who was willing to give them a second chance also was typically a child, and as Regina says to Drizella um, in season seven, quote, my gift to you is what I always wanted, someone to believe I can change, quote. Why individuals may identify more with Disney villains in Disney animated films. So in analyzing the characteristics, qualities, and identities Disney villains possess, embrace, and suppress throughout the paper that I wrote, Uh, Disney villains are initially good people who had bad things happen to them, and the only example I could come up with was when um, Sirius Black in the Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix movie told Harry, you're not a bad person, you're a very good person who had bad things happen to them. And this is also true for Disney villains, until they start letting those bad things influence them to be bad people. Characters depicted as Disney villains are just trying to survive and prove that, you know, quote, evil isn't born, it's made, quote. They are not born bad people, but they're people who have had bad things happen to them, just like Harry. Jafar from Aladdin is one example of someone trying to survive despite all the bad things in life. And I think I mentioned it before in in episode one, and obviously I'm always going to mention Aladdin and Jafar because it's the movie that I have seen the most um, and according to Watsa videos which actually they renamed <coughs> excuse me um, but if you type in Watsa videos on YouTube you'll still find their account but it is different um, but according to them in the rough draft version of the movie Aladdin Jafar grew up in poverty and was bullied by the people of Agrabah, and he had strived hard to be educated and work as the Sultan's royal vizier so he would never have to live in poverty and repression again and i also mentioned this in episode one eric kongale who's one of the writers of the parody musical twisted the untold story of a royal vizier on youtube uh, by team starkid explained why he thinks jafar is a true hero in the movie aladdin and he said the most likable character i think i can argue through to prove is, a, is jafar yeah he wants to take over the kingdom but from who a drug adult idiot of a sultan who sits on the throne and sacks toys of animals that's no way to run a kingdom. And that was from the uh, A Very Star Kid Reunion, which I think is only on DVD. I don't think it's on YouTube. So you might not be able to find that. But um, Disney villains, they glorify the human qualities society wants to suppress or ignore. Some examples would be, you know, being vulnerable, being frustrated, feeling lust for another, feeling jealous or envious of another, and, and I'm sure there are plenty more. They represent the individuals who have to try and fail multiple times to be successful, the individuals who are too proud to admit being wrong, and the individuals who will do anything to protect what is close and dear to them. I think everyone can or does feel these things, and I also um, think that everyone faces temptation and battles inner demons at some point in their life. Uh, That can come in various different shapes and sizes, of course, and Disney villains believe that what they are doing is the right way or the best way to do it uh, to be successful and survive. And it's just, to everyone else, it just may be a little bit of an extreme, I would say. And so in conclusion, from examining and discussing the identities, characteristics, and experiences of Disney villains, I think it's pretty evident that Disney animated films are one-sided stories. Uh, uh, Mark Helmsing who I mentioned before, um, with the article, with the essay, um, this is no ordinary apple. States that while Disney villains live within the white patriarchal world of Disney, their vainglorious quest for beauty and power are no different from the conforming public desires in the dominant culture. So they still have the same goals and the same uh, dreams that everybody else has, but they don't conform to public or they don't conform to society to accomplish those things. They are willing to go outside of what society considers normal or okay to get what they want. And so, if anything, Disney villains are the size of humanity that people wish to ignore. The the anger, the jealousy, the lust, the self-investment, and, and more. People may wish to ignore these feelings, thoughts, or ideas, but they're still there inside. And there's nothing wrong in wanting to be successful and happy and, and be able to express your own opinion, but there is wrong in accomplishing such desires at the expense of others. I personally believe everyone can identify with a Disney villain, whether it's their identity, their characteristic, and a particular attitude and appearance or experience. While it may not be Disney's intent for audiences to identify or cheer for the Disney villains, there is much to learn from them. And that is also a quote by Helmzine. And sometimes it's, quote, better to be fabulous and have gone out big as a dragon or a witch than a dowry, boring scullery maid or servile housemother to ungrateful dwarves, quote. So that's the end of my paper. Let me know your thoughts, uh, comments, opinions, etc. on my blog, wonderfulworldofdisneyvillains.com. Thanks for listening and I'll see you next time.